Welcome to Leaders in Conversation. Today, I'm delighted to be in conversation with Jessica Holbert. Welcome, Jessica. Jessica is a celebrant and works with people, helping them to have conversations about their lives and their deaths and the kind of ceremony that enables them to have the best possible experiences of life's big transitions, be that birth, death, marriage, and everything in between. Jess, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Annie. It's a difficult conversation to have, isn't it, about it is. death? And when I got into this, it was because of my own situation of losing my parents. My dad went first, and it was such a shock to not have any vocabulary. I didn't know what to do. And I, I thought, gosh, well, if I'm the same and I'm a reasonably well-educated person, so many other people must feel the same. I was very fortunate to have a very good friend who's a celebrant to lean on. And my father had actually asked him to be the officiant at his funeral. So that was the one easy thing. All of the other sides of it, how to deal with a body, the funeral director's tasks, how to get somebody who's died in hospital away from the hospital morgue. I had no idea of all of that. The funeral directors were absolutely fantastic. And through the whole process, I learned enough to realise that actually this was something I wanted to get involved with. I've always been one of those people who can't do a job for the sake of it. I want to work in a field where it makes a difference, where I'm paying back in some way. And this seemed to fulfill that need for me. So I sat with that for a while. And over the next couple of years, my, my mother was then going downhill. She had a very long battle with Alzheimer's. And I felt very immobilised by the system. So even though I'd learned quite a lot and I knew what to do second time round in this case, my brother and I even went to the funeral directors before she died, which I know many people couldn't even comprehend. We chose a coffin for her. We had conversation and I had a very good idea about what I would want to put in that service, even though Christopher, the same celebrant, did the second service. And he's a very good friend and did a superb job. After those two very personal funerals, I was still working somewhere else. I was in a completely different field, but I felt that I had come into contact with something that really needed more conversation, more emphasis needed to be put on pre-death, the run-up to death, dying and post-death, both for the person dying and for their families who were coping with it. If we can't talk about a process as intimate and important as dying with our families, it's a very, very lonely and frightening experience, I would think. Obviously, I haven't died, so I don't know. If families can be involved with their loved ones to find out what they really want, what their truest wish is, you know, it might be to have no medical intervention. It might be to have lots of medical intervention. It might be to not go anywhere near a hospital, or it might be to have lots of doctors around them making them feel safe. So every situation is completely different. But my personal experiences from dealing with these deaths close to my family, close to myself, made me realise that more often than not, people don't think about it until it happens. And then all of their reactions are shock, absolute disbelief, and that immobilises them. 
and then they can't continue with what should be a process that helps their grieving not hinders it if that helps in any way it absolutely resonates with me just because ahead of my father's death a couple of years ago he met with the funeral director and one of my lasting memories is of him saying having met her that he felt that he was in a safe pair of hands. He mm. suffered, lived with dementia, and he was greatly comforted by having had the conversation with her, talking about what would happen and what he would like to happen. Mm. And this notion of him feeling that he was going to have safe passage, that he was going to be in a safe pair of hands, not only greatly comforted him, Jess, but I have to say it comforted me. Mm. I felt reassured that he was just as he had chosen, if at all possible, to end his life and to die at home in his own bed, that from there he would be looked after and, and well looked after. And I think knowing that, as I say, not only helped him, but it also helped us, the family, that he, we were not on our own having those conversations for the first time without him, mm. that he was part of having those conversations with us. And we were very involved in that. Yes, and I think the last thing I would want is to paint a picture of the celebrant being the only one in the whole death experience. That is absolutely not the case. I come into contact with many, many funeral directors and across the board, they are such lovely people. They care deeply about the deceased, about the families, and they all want a good outcome. What isn't so easy is the streamlined effect of our modern day cremation system so that often people can feel on a kind of conveyor belt because they're given a time slot. It's a very, very rushed affair. You've got half an hour, you're in, out, you know, three pieces of music, bit of a tribute, bang, 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 and then you're out again. And because you don't see what happens to the coffin, obviously everybody knows it goes into the furnace and it goes into the incinerator. But people, I feel, are left with this sort of slightly unfinished business, whereas with a burial, it's so much softer and final. The coffin goes into the ground and it's covered and it's safe and warm and it's a very soft experience. It's a personal choice, I suppose. I may be also driven by the feeling that cremation isn't a very long-term option for our planet. So many thousands of deaths and funerals incinerated using so much energy emitting all of the fumes and the toxicity into our system is not sustainable. And yet the alternatives are more labour intensive, they can cost more, and we have a very good system of cremation in this country. It's very, very streamlined and it works. I don't think it's very good for the planet. <laughs> I think we could be doing better on that front. So I'm not sure how we get there. But I think more natural burial grounds, more places set up to do very eco-friendly burials with perhaps more woolen shrouds used instead of coffins, more cardboard in place rather than um, chipboard, which uh, also gives off toxic fumes because of the way it's treated. All of these issues need to be talked about, need to be thought about, and then families would probably choose differently if they were given more information. I think you're absolutely right. I think it's about being educated 
um, having information, knowing what the options are. And probably because we don't talk about death and dying, and we don't always get the chance to talk about it or have the right people <clears throat> with whom we can talk about it, we don't think about these particular things. And you just mentioned, you know, being wrapped in a shroud and a, a woolen shroud sounds absolutely lovely and very comforting um, way of being buried and returning to the earth. Well, wool is an infinitely recyclable, biodegradable material. And as long ago as the 1700s and, and earlier, people were being wrapped in wool. There is a new trend as well to, I think there's a company in, in Yorkshire up north, they are producing vast amounts of woolen coffins. And they're made stronger with cardboard, but they're basically all wool. And that gets over the problem of people's squeamishness, perhaps, or funeral directors or anybody else having a problem dealing with the physical body wrapped in something material because if you have a hard coffin with a lid on it you don't perhaps have to think so closely about what is contained in that obviously everybody knows but it's like we're removing the deceased person from the reality people can still pretend you know it's just a box it's just a coffin you know the actual reality of our loved one being in that coffin I don't think is always at the forefront of people's minds because it's a difficult reality so then again, I think when we start to have more conversation about death and dying and our wishes for our burials, that could also be, be brought back into a family setting mm -hmm. so that it's not such a, a taboo issue. You know, I mean, my children, obviously, because I talk about it all the time, they're very familiar with everything to do with death and dying. I think death has just as equal a place in all of our lives as all of the other ceremonies that go with the joyful sides of our lives. You know, there's a beginning and then there's a, a growing up phase and a, and a marriage perhaps, and divorce can even have ceremony around it. There is any of our human interactions that take place can be cemented and restructured with ceremony. And if only we could put joyful ceremony into all of these events, including death, yes. then I think all of our emotional pathways, I don't know if that's the right word here, but the emotional sort of road we're traveling would be easier. And I'm no expert, but all I see is many, many suicides, all the de depression, all the mental health issues. We're not processing our emotions well enough. And it's a hunch. I haven't researched it. I'm not an expert. But I just feel that with more conversation, more, more listening to each other's needs, more care and love of the identity of the person that we can come through the process with a greater feeling of release and relief and a feeling that we can carry on. So in that way, helping with our feeling of being confident that we can, whatever the circumstances, however tragic or however grief stricken we are, that we're able to carry on our lives with meaning and purpose and, and perhaps through having had a ceremony in which we're able to express ourselves and be witness, we're able to go forward, which is so important. Well, yes, because I think a lot of people, or particularly those who have religion to lean on and, and as a support, they're well served at having a place to put their grief or their joy, whatever it is. Yes. And people who don't have that as a support system don't not need something. 
So building a ceremony around something, whether it has a spiritual input or not, I believe really, really helps the process. You've mentioned to me previously the importance of memorials, which can take place sometime after the event. And perhaps that's another opportunity for people to come together after a death and be able to experience the joy of a person's life that bit further away from their death. Yes, absolutely. I completely agree. The shock and the deep grief that you go into after a death, particularly a sudden and, and unexpected death, I think often can make people less able to be aware of what's going on at the time. And so they're basically just going through the motions because that's all they can do. Get through another day, you know, tick boxes of this has to happen. And then after a certain time has passed, there are different stages and it can take months for some people or years for some people. There's no time limit, but there comes a time when the deep grief changes to something softer when I can only speak from my own experience, but particularly with my mother, who all I could remember was her lying in her bed in her sort of very fetal position as that late Alzheimer's person becomes close to death and feeling that I couldn't remember her vibrant self when she was an amazing younger woman and an amazing mother and all the things she did with us. And she's been gone for three years now. And what's most apparent for me now is I don't, obviously I remember her last years, but what's coming back is her younger years and her vibrant self. And that's very joyful. And I think it's very sad when we can't share those memories with all the people that were close to her. So, so very recently, I called some of her friends around to me. These are some of these women I've known all my life. And they sat around my table and we talked about my mother. And I learned some lovely things from them. And they hopefully learned something from me, from my memories of her. And at the time, if you'd asked me why on earth I was doing this, it was, I have no idea. I have no idea. It's just a, a feeling, a wish of remembering the good times. Yeah, it was a very, very special occasion. But yes, memorial, I think, is very, very important. Not that we should hark back and not let somebody go. There's a new stage. But just to honour the person and remember who they were before they were elderly, before they lost that vibrant person that they were. Sounds absolutely lovely. We're also going to talk today, Jess, about the anything in between all the other ceremonies as well as your being a, a funeral celebrant before we move on to them for anybody listening to our conversation what encouragement would you give them to have conversations sooner about death and dying and where might they start perhaps talking about what they would like and or with a loved one or with a partner, with a friend, what would you encourage anybody listening to this who's wanting to learn from you and to be able to have those conversations, which, as you said at the very beginning, we're not very practised at. Thankfully, in many ways, we're not practised at. But where would you start? What would be the encouragement you would give? I would certainly suggest any person going into their later years should have in place powers of attorney with people being able to, as their attorneys, people that they trust, not necessarily within the family, 
but that when and if something were to happen, they know that responsibility goes to those people. It sounds like an onerous task, but it shouldn't be. You can do it yourself. You can download the forms, you can fill them in and you just get somebody to witness. It's not a will, but it has a lot of power because if, for instance, you became ill and lost capacity and didn't want something to happen in a hospital situation, the medical world need to know about that. And if that's not documented with all the correct, all the legal stuff around it, that still wouldn't stand. So, and quite rightly, it's a doctor's job to keep somebody alive. But it's also, I feel quite right to allow somebody to die when they're ready. And if they don't want to be kept alive, if they're not going to have the quality of life after the particular illness they're having, then I think that's something that should be everybody's choice. But practically speaking, I would always hope people would have the courage to talk about what they want for their own funerals before they die. And I do have quite a lot of discussions with elderly people, some of them not so elderly, some of them who just come up to me and say, I want you to please do my funeral when it's the time and I write it somewhere. The most important thing for me is to meet with those people and say, well, what is it that you want? How would you like your last going out party to be? What would you like it to look like? With music, would you like other people to be hearing when you're no longer there physically to experience that? And I've worked with several lovely people, um, one particularly springs to mind where she's in her late 80s and she described how if she chose the things she wanted she wouldn't worry about her children having to decide and having to disagree because she decided she spoke of if she became ill which of her children she would like to look after her and how and if at all possible she would like to remain in her own home and not go to a care home or, or a hospital and how that would be how she could set that up financially or if there isn't enough money how the state can help that it's not necessarily my job to answer those questions but in asking questions and in listening to what people's wishes are it seems to give a huge amount of comfort and take the fear away because the fear of of death and not knowing what's going to happen can stand in the way of enjoying the last phase of their life so deal with this write down what you want get something in place maybe even pay for your funeral, maybe even go and see your funeral director and say, I want that sort of a coffin, or I want a wicker coffin, or I want to sit in a place with other women of my own age and make a, a shawl or a shroud to wrap myself in, or I want to have a cardboard coffin that I invite all of my grandchildren to paint on before I'm buried in it. I mean, it can be infinite numbers of things that just make people smile. And it can sound very, very macabre and dark, but that's because we've been conditioned to yeah. think of everything about death as being dark and macabre. And it's not, it's, it's just a fact of life. You know, we're all born and then we all die and there's everything in between. I can't say what I would particularly advise any one person, but I would love to be asked to help find a solution through a conversation, even if it's, not to choose me, but choose a, a minister of some sort or, you know, whatever is best for them. Well, my hope is very much for those people listening to our conversation that through what you're sharing, they will feel encouraged to have these conversations about their own lives and start to think about 
death and, and dying and what they would like. And the way you talk about it, Jess, makes it sound like it can be very comforting and that people feel very cared for in the conversation and somewhat relieved perhaps to have the conversation um, about their own deaths and to start to have that conversation sooner rather than later. You've also spoken, moving on to the anything in between ceremonies, which I know are very important to you as well, and which also have this crucial element of conversation in them, of bringing people together and the possibility mm. of people having conversations maybe that they never imagined they would have together to be able to celebrate a family member or, or, or somebody else. Mm. Be lovely to hear more about that. Of course. I mean, well, every life event should be celebrated. Um, nothing more than a birth. I mean, how, how miraculous that a new person joins this crazy world of ours. And let's face it, they'll need all the help they can get. So outside the confines of the church, perhaps, where christenings are a very formalised situation, I think I would approach the welcoming of a new being in the same way that I would approach any ceremony. I'd talk to the parents, I'd find out about the family traditions, just because there may be a religious element from one side of the family that needs to be honoured, and that's important. That child is coming in from maybe different places in the world in terms of religion. I would certainly have an immense amount of reverence around that child and the fact that they've made it this far and how special, and also around any godparents or whatever people want to call them. I'm a fairy godmother to, to, <laughs> to a child. I'm also a godmother to various. Whatever names people want to attach to a person outside a family who takes some sort of responsibility for the well-being of that young person throughout their lives. I think that ceremony makes that relationship take root. So you plant a seed for that special relationship to take place and then to carry on growing through the child's life. And I think that's a very important thing. It's a joy for, for yeah. a family, yeah. as, a, as the birth of a child should be. And comforting to know that there are other people looking out for the child, where sometimes conversations within a family or if somebody is bringing up the child on their own, having other people around who can help mm. um, steer and be there for, for yeah. the child is so important. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also I imagine in the really difficult circumstances of a child's death as well, where having those people who are there not only in that terrible time but also for the parent or the parents very much in the same spirit as witnesses to a marriage so that if the marriage were to have problems or sticky periods that those friends who were witness to that marriage ideally and i think that's traditionally how they were put together should come and support that couple to to see them through a, a tricky time um, i'm not sure that always works in practice but um it's a lovely thought again i feel that with marriages, so often the joyfulness of a young couple getting married for the first time and they're young and this is their first stepping out into the world as a young couple, that's extremely special. But I also see a lot of people who remarry 
and they may have children from previous relationships or marriages. There are grandparents from previous relationships and marriages. So that for me is also something I want to involve in the ceremony because a family isn't made up of just two people. A family is made up of the two people, all the children involved, all the grandparents involved and everybody else around them. And for everybody to feel included in the impact of that union, that needs to be included in the ceremony. Obviously, I would be driven by the couple and their needs and wishes and desires. And I would always put together a ceremony that reflected what they want. But my personal wish is to steer them into a sort of situation where they are honouring their backgrounds, their past, their ancestors, and everybody they've brought with them. Because in this world of, you know, huge amounts of divorce and family rifts, when two people come together with all of the extras, their their baggage, what most people call it baggage, which is dreadful, each of those precious bags are people who are being made into a different entity in that relationship. So the whole dynamic changes when those two people come together and in honouring all of those people I think you have more success of a fruitful marriage of a long-term committed relationship and it starts from the beginning from that commitment that celebration of them as people and everything that they bring to the relationship. That's a, a lovely way of putting it and I'm very aware this year of marriages and civil partnerships and of other celebrations having to be postponed and or taking place virtually. This year I've been to the first ever funeral through a live web stream and uh, these are very different times for us at this time Mm. of uh, living and dying through and from the virus. It's terribly difficult for everybody. I so feel for all of those couples out there wanting to get married, having their weddings postponed and not being allowed to have all the people they want around them. That must be just so sad. What I would say to them is find a way of marking your special relationship for yourselves as a couple and do the big celebration later. You've made your commitment in deciding to get married. Have a small ceremony with however many people you're allowed at the time. Make it really special. Put all the magic you want into it, and you can have as much or more again with all of your friends and family afterwards. But living is for now. We shouldn't really be postponing <laughs> for so long. You know, that the magic is now. I, I, that's how I feel about the marriages. But I feel for people so badly. Um, with the funerals oh it's been so so difficult for families you know if you you can imagine a a large family where there are multiple children and they all have children and grandchildren if it's a very elderly person who's died how do you choose 12 people from that family so the live streaming of these services is hugely important and I will always try and include anybody who is not with us So, you know, I know where the camera is and I can say to that camera, I can, you know, welcome all of you from home as well. You're here, you're here in spirit. You're not here in person, but, you know, thank you for being here. And I think we have to all just adjust to these very difficult situations. Who knew 
what was going to happen to us. And even now where, you know, in the funerals, everything's even stricter now than it was at the height of the, the pandemic in sort of April, May, people have to wear masks. I mean, can you imagine being deeply, deeply upset and you have a mask and you're crying through it? And it's just horrible, but we have to do what we have to do. And amongst that, as much humanity, as much empathy and as much talking about how we can make the special touches really count. And that, that's the same for every, every ceremony. You have to make it personal. You have to make people feel heard and that they matter. Everybody matters. I suppose that's my most deeply driving force is that I want everybody who I ever deal with to feel like they mattered to me. So if I'm creating a ceremony for somebody, it doesn't matter who they are, if they're the king or if they're the, the homeless person on the street. They are equal. Everybody is equal in life and death and everything in between. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been a real honour and a pleasure to talk with you today. How is it best for people to contact you? Should they wish to have a conversation with you, talk about their own death and or another celebration? It would be great if you could let our listeners know. I have a website, uh, which is solemnity.org. Dot uk and my email address is jessica with a k j-e-s-s-i-k-a at solemnity.org.uk wonderful thank you jess